friends, welcome to Sky House Herbs Podcast. I'm Ashley Ellenboss, a clinical herbalist, and in this space, I share my knowledge and experience with plant medicine to help you on your own journey of healing and transformation. Join me in exploring the ancient wisdom of plant spirit medicine and how it can be used to heal the body, mind, and spirit. We'll talk to experts in the field and share stories from people who've been transformed by powerful plant allies. New episodes are released each Monday, so please subscribe. And now, let's explore this mystical world of plant medicine together. Hey friends, welcome in. Today we'll be exploring a concept called internal family systems. Now you might be thinking, well, what does this have to do with herbs or what does this have to do with astrology? But it actually has a lot to do with what's going on in the sky right now. So in today's episode, my husband and I will be looking at the current astrological transits and looking at how this relates to a book that we're reading called No Bad Parts, which is based off of IFS or internal family systems, a way of looking at the psyche and the mind in terms of its parts. It's fascinating. So I really hope you enjoy today's podcast. If you like it, please click the thumbs up button. If you haven't subscribed, please subscribe. And if it's worth sharing for you, please share it with a friend. Thanks so much and enjoy. Welcome back, Ashley. Hey, good to be back. (laughs) I'm happy that we have a chance to talk about the book that we're reading right now, because I feel like, I mean, we've, we, we have been reading some really interesting books since the spring Um, but this one has really stood out. And so I'm really excited to talk about it and try to wrap it into one of the transits in the sky and some of our work, um, you know, with, um, both astrology and herbs. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. I do. I really do feel like this, uh, this monomyth concept is so applicable to the way we think about plants too. So yeah, I think it's going to be a really rich conversation. Yeah, for sure. Well, on that note, let's take a look at the real time. Uh, clock so we can look at the transit that we are covering today and then we'll get into it um, and I uh, can't wait to hear what Ashley's going to add to the conversation as well. Uh, here we go. So um, whoops, I have let me just get here we go. sorry. So you can see um, where we stand today. We can see that the sun is coming through the square to Uranus and I just want to speed this up a little bit so you can see, that that square is going to perfect Tuesday, August 15th into Wednesday, the 23rd. But what's so interesting about this is that this square between the sun and Uranus picks up the new moon in Leo. So this is officially coming a new moon in Leo with the sun square Uranus. This is a the theme that we're going to talk about today, though one of many that are possible for a sun-Uranus combination Um is one of the most interesting philosophical themes that I see coming up in the lives of my clients when Uranus hits their sun by transit. Um, And I think it's an angle of the sun-Uranus dynamic that is not often talked about because it's so philosophical and it can be hard to go from the philosophical level of an archetype to the practical. I think we're going to make this practical today, even though the premise of how we're looking at the sun Uranus is sort of philosophical to start with. So hang with us as we go, because I think you're really going to like where we take this. Before we get into looking at the sun Uranus, which is, you know, we're going to be experiencing not only next week, um, but it's already in the works right now. And then we'll be toning the entire next moon cycle. Um, The way that we're going to go about looking at this is in terms of it can be broadly spoke, broadly speaking, they're sometimes called monomyths, but um, 
we're going to apply this more loosely because sometimes monomyths will be used to talk about, um, you know, monotheistic uh, religious traditions and or uh, mythologies that represent a monotheistic worldview. Um, we're going to expand this beyond monotheistic, monotheistic religions and think about a kind of monomythic thinking in a, in a more broad sense. It doesn't, it can be broader than just religious and other, just religious thinking. In other words, um, the way that we're going to get into this though, is about, uh, we're going to talk about a book that we're reading first, and I'm going to read you a passage from this book. So the book that we're reading is called No Bad Parts. Ashley and I are reading this every morning. Uh, among some of our other things, we read a little bit of Mary Oliver. We read a passage from a book on uh, Taoist philosophy. We kind of have a bunch of books that we read. And then this is usually our longer passage of the day uh, from a, a book like this. So this one's called No Bad Parts. And it's called Healing Trauma and Restoring Wholeness with the Internal Family Systems Model. Now, some of you may be familiar with IFS or Internal Family Systems. Actually, a lot of modern psychological astrologers have incorporated elements of the IFS paradigm into the way that they read birth charts. And it can be a really valuable... In fact, I learned about this approach to looking at birth charts before I even knew what IFS was or had ever read this book. As soon as I started reading it, I went, oh... Now I can see Howard Sesportis, Liz Green, so many astrologers that I cut my teeth on that were clearly aware of this model and maybe incorporating elements of it. And then some astrologers are clearly incorporating it um, more uh, directly because they may be trained or certified in IFS as a form of therapy. Um, anyway, if you have never heard of it before, uh, the idea basically summarized is that we are a community that our minds or our psyches um, feature a community of parts that rather than thinking of ourselves as one individual, that we are an individual comprised of many voices, personalities, and parts. I think that's probably something, I mean, had you ever heard of that idea before, Ashley? Was that like anything you had ever heard of? No, that was called schizophrenia or like personality <laughs> disorder, you know, in, you know, years ago when, when that kind of, would come up. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, like, I think there's, there's definitely like, at some point, this went to being more accepted, at least because I the place I had heard it where this became normalized. Well, if I'm completely honest, you know, the first time that this ever occurred to me that this was a thing was through psychedelic experiences. Mm, yeah. Because I in a psychedelic, yeah. No, <laughs> you, you, you've had them too. How yeah, well, I mean, you just start to see that um, that there is personality in life to so many different things. And, you know, I just remember experiences, especially I had a lot of psychedelic experiences outside camping or in the woods. And, you know, you, you'd be thinking something and observing something, and then you would observe yourself thinking and observing that thing. And you could go into like meta levels of observing the observed, the observed, and even noticing how one part of you would would kind of go on a on a train this way, but then there'd be another voice that would have to chime in. And you're like, that's a different voice. Yeah. That That's a very different perspective of where this perspective mm -hmm. is. And then, but then there's the self, that overarching voice that, that is also co-present among all of those different parts. So I just remember that from being out in nature and having those really, yeah, psychedelic experiences and just sort of watching the banter go on in my head and being like, this is a full house. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. Yeah, I mean, um, I would say my early ayahuasca experiences in particular helped me to understand that 
you know, some of the, some of the inmates were running the prison, you know, right. you know what I mean? like that, that there were, that there were parts of me that were very dominant and there were other parts of me that were maybe needing to come forth a little bit more. Hmm. Um, there was no, um, as far as I'm concerned, this isn't, this isn't just a paradigm. This is sort of just how it is. Like, I, I wouldn't say that it's an idea. It seems to me to be just a very plain observation about how our, how we operate. Um, and that there is, there is the, the sort of wise sense of um, an overarching self that's there too. Uh, it feels like the wise part of us that uh, can somehow hold space and mediate among and with and through the parts, but the parts aren't, they also are not, um, not self they're, mm -hmm. they're, they're elements of, or aspects of, it's a little bit like saying that they're within the way that we operate as individuals. It's a reflection of what so many mystics have said that God is, is, um, uh, one in many simultaneously that that God is getting to know itself through its as its various aspects in conversation. There's something like that going on within each of us as individuals uh, on a micro level within the larger divinity of the universe or something. This is very psychedelic territory, but I think that one of the things that's really refreshing about this book is how simply and um, beautifully and almost like common sensically that the, the information is conveyed like it's very easy to follow yeah yeah and you know i think what's so helpful about this way of thinking too is that there's no shame in having voices that are troublesome you know it's like you know and and what i love about it too is that every voice has a reason for having that voice so there's no shame like if we have a very self-critical voice or if we have like a very um you know a voice that um is very afraid or doesn't trust it's not like those are bad parts and like i love that about the book like there's no bad parts there's no parts of us that need to be get you know you don't we don't toss that part out we welcome, we, we bring a safe part in to have a conversation with that part, to try to figure out what was the wound and how did that part become just so defensive? And, um, and so then, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of like reclaiming those parts into their own individual uh, space of happiness and their own sphere of health and wellness. And I just love that because it feels it's so inclusive and it's so welcoming to the healing process without this sort of puritanical, like you've got to rinse and purge it all away. Right. Yeah, exactly. There's the, as the book, the title of the book indicates no bad parts. Um, this is a, um, you're, first of all, you're looking at the community of parts and voices that are a that are you that comprise you, um, and you're looking at you're looking at them in terms of you know which voices have been activated, maybe become extreme through trauma, um, and how do we bring compassion to those parts rather than how do we get rid of or cleanse or purge or you know, um, and so th th this is in my mind there's a lot of overlap between the way that we look at a birth chart, uh, the way that uh, herbalists for thousands of years have looked at the psyche in relation to plants. Um, and so 
I want to read you guys just a little passage, and this is going to tie in now to why we're doing this at the Sun Uranus Square. Um, here it goes. This is parts aren't obstacles. The mono mind paradigm can easily lead us to fear or to fear or hate ourselves because we believe we have only one mind. And then in parentheses, he says, full of primitive or sinful aspects that we can't control. We get tied up in knots as we desperately try. And we generally, we generate brutal inner critics who attack us for our failings. <clears throat> Since my, most psychotherapies and spiritual practices subscribe to this mono-mind view, their, solution often re, their solutions often reinforce this approach by suggesting we should correct irrational beliefs or mediate them away because those beliefs are seen as obstacles emanating from our one mind. Many approaches to meditation, for example, view thoughts as pests and the ego as a hindrance or annoyance, and practitioners are given instructions to either ignore or transcend them. In some Hindu traditions, the ego is viewed as working for the god Maya, whose goal is to keep us striving for material things or hedonistic pleasures. She's considered the enemy, a temptress, much like the Christian Satan, who keeps us attached to the external world of illusion. Buddhist teachings use the term monkey mind to describe how our thoughts jump around in our consciousness like an agitated monkey. As Ralph De La Rosa notes in The Monkey is the Messenger, quote, is it any wonder that the monkey mind is the scourge of meditators across the globe? For those trying to find respite in contemplative practice, thoughts are often regarded as an irritating nuisance, a primitive agitator sneaking in through the side door. In meditation circles, some unintended consequence Consequences of the monkey metaphor prevail, that the thinking mind is a dirty, primitive, lower life form of no real value to us. It's just a bunch of garbage on repeat. <clears throat> De La Rosa is one of a number of recent authors who challenged the common practice in spirituality of vilifying the ego. Um, the, in, uh, another uh, psychotherapist, Matt Licata, writes, the ego is often spoke about as if it is some sort of self-existing thing that at time takes us over. Some nasty, super unspiritual, ignorant little person living inside causes us to act in really unevolved ways, creating unending messes in our lives and getting in the way of our progress on the path. It is something to be horribly ashamed of. And the more spiritually are, we are, the more we will strive to get rid of it, transcend it, or enter into imaginary spiritual wars with it. If we look carefully, we may see that if the ego is anything, it is likely those very voices that are yelling at us to get rid of it. Yeah. The collection of parts that these traditions call the ego are protectors who are simply trying to keep us safe and are reacting to and containing other parts that carry emotions and memories from past traumas that we have locked away. So he goes on to talk about this more and more, but um, I don't suspect that this author is anti-meditation, anti-spirituality, uh, because he, in other portions of the same book, he talks about mindfulness and meditation and how it can be used constructively. Um, so I, I want to make sure that people don't misinterpret that passage. But I think what he's getting at is that there are some very common myths um, that we have about how we ought to be in order to be healthy or happy. And these fall in line with the sun square to Uranus. These myths fall in line and tend to get amplified with this transit. And we also tend to call them into question under the exact same transit. For example, let's say you had a Mercury square Saturn transit. One of the things that you can do under a Mercury square Saturn transit is you could uh, become incredibly uh, focused and disciplined mentally about something. 
But the exact same transit could call into your awareness the tendency that you have to be overly rigid or too disciplined in your thinking. So archetypes are really funny in the way that they can come in and they're the amplification of the archetype can pull us into something very unconscious, uh, a shadow of the archetype. On the other hand, sometimes the very same transit will bring our awareness to the shadow. It's incredible how it can work, and it really has to do with where we're at in our lives, in our consciousness. Well, there are three myths that Sun-Uranus squares tend to bring. And remember, the reason for this overall is that the Sun as it represents clarity, luminosity, a clear heart and a clear sense of purpose that we have, a trajectory for our life that is just as bright and vivid and easy to spot as the sun. I'm going to do this. I'm going to become this. I'm going that way. My purpose is clear. It's heroic. I can't be stopped. That's the sun sort of at its best. Well, what is Uranus? Uranus is the uh, also contains within it a, a similar desire for progress, for innovation, for revolution, for experimentation, for going outside of the box, uh, and for revolutionizing our lives. So when you put the two together, you will often have the amplification of the desire for all of the things that the sun represents with a kind of charismatic zeal that gets really loud and intense. Um, at the same exact time, the very same values that the sun Uranus can amplify can become so exaggerated that we suddenly become aware of their shadows. There are three of them that I want to just briefly mention, and I'll have Ashley pitch in with me as we go. Now, these three monomyths, if they if they become if they if they become too extreme, they can uh, we can forget that we in, in fact are a community inside of us, that there is, there's a community of voices and parts that need love and that need um, to be, they need understanding. So the first myth is that we aim for wholeness. Now, when that's taken to, I like wholeness. I like the sound of it. Sounds pretty good to me. I feel like there's many times in my life where I would describe what I'm looking for or feeling or achieving as something like wholeness. But at the same time, haven't you ever felt like there's there's this kind of zealous, almost like a fundamentalist paradigm out there. And it lives in us, it lives around us. And it says, you should take all of the disparate parts of yourself and they should be built into one thing. And that means you're whole. Once you take all of the different things and they become perfectly integrated and you're just operating seamlessly as the same person without you know, feeling confused or off your center or whatever, then you're whole, then you're happy. Yeah. Well, and isn't it interesting that often when we get, and maybe this is all my Aries talking, but there's a, there, when you hit that groove, there's a part of you that says, screw this. <laughs> I need something different. And that's the Uranus too. It, you know, it's like, well, that was fun for a little while, yeah. but you know, we need to spice this up a little bit. So, you know, I think that, yeah. One thing that I was thinking about too, with wholeness and sort of the mono idea is like mono crops, you know, it, even in herbalism, you know, we can see that if you try to just grow one, like fields and fields of one plant, yeah, you can grow acres of soy and acres of corn, but then you're going to have acres of the same pests. And then you're going to need acres and, you know, tons of chemicals to spray. But if you have, you know, if you do biodynamic gardening, or if you grow different plants together that work harmoniously, they each have their own strengths, they each have their own weaknesses. Um, but it, but it, when you diversify the environment, your growing environment, it actually strengthens everything and everything can thrive even more than if you're trying to create that monocrop. And I, I feel like that's, yeah, that's like part of this 
reevaluation is, do you really want to be a field of soy or would you rather be a field of wildflowers? You know, what, what sounds like more fun? <laughs> I remember when we were at the, we were at the herbal confluence in Colorado where I almost died. No, we did. Yeah. <laughs> I can concur. I had altitude sickness. No, but we were there and you know, I think it was, maybe it was you that was talking about this. We were talking about how a plant uh, will the remedy for a poison will grow really close to the poison. Like there'll be, okay, this thing gives you poison, you know, poison ivy grows close to another plant that could be rubbed on the skin to alleviate the immediate burn or something like that. That's right. Yeah. That was a class I was teaching on bee balm or Minarda fistulosa. And yeah, like one of the things is that, you know, if you have something like poison ivy and jewelweed is a plant that often grows near it, um, it will be, you know, it'll be the remedy. And uh, Tismal Crow, who is a Muscogee herbalist, um, who is a teacher of Matthew Woods, said that, you know, even better is the closer the plant medicine is to the poison, the stronger the antidote. Yeah. So yeah. they can exist together. Yes. Yes. Well, and what I was going to, I just wanted to dovetail off from what you're saying really quick to say, I think that that is, you know, in the mono myth, it's like, um, when everything has to become one thing, we forget how rich it is to live lives where one voice in us might be sort of toxic, but if you pay attention, that voice is closely related to probably another voice that has the exact medicine for that voice. Mm. They, they're friends. They know each other. I think about, um, for example, my my grandmother. This is a memory that I have of her. And I, I wish I could remember exactly what she would say. But it would always be like she'd be starting to get irritated with my grandfather. And it was always in the kitchen around meals because that was like her territory. She was very much the kitchen general. And uh, she's a cancer and I was born on her birthday, by the way. Um, anyway, uh, she would, I could tell, I just have a memory of, of this pattern where she would start to be like her irritation, her voice of irritation with my grandfather would start to rise up and become dominant and extreme. And she'd have this way of like leaving, just being like some other part of her knew, hmm that part's starting to get extreme. I better go take a walk or I better leave the kitchen or I better just take a moment. And then she'd be like, fine. And I always just remember just the, the kind of sly little smile. Like she knew, like I better exit right now. <laughs> I understand that now. I just, just reflecting on this. Those are her parts talking, you know, they're, they're having a dialogue and there there's the, the, the poison and the medicine have this little, bond that they're close to one another and what is poison in one moment might only be poison because one part is becoming extreme as a way of protecting us or it has become extreme over time because of trauma but often if we pay attention um there, there's such a rich community within us that the medicine or the the friend that can sit down and talk with that voice is also there inside of us yeah i love that that's beautiful and yeah and i think you know too it's like you might have to weed out or you know in the book he talks about you know when you're trying to get to that part that's really screaming out and, and making a fuss you might have to tell this part okay you're trying to protect him let's just have you step to the side and oh you know i see you too you're you're right there can you give me just a minute with this part and it's kind of like you know when you're in the garden and you're our garden is like so over 
it's just overflowing with abundance. You have to kind of like go through like levels of <laughs> to get to the tomatoes that are underneath the marigold that are underneath the cosmos. It's like you kind of got to go through it um, to find what it is you're looking for. And it's mm -hmm. often, yeah, the tenderest parts are often the most hidden. I think it's amazing how the sun Uranus will tend to emphasize this myth of wholeness. Now, I, you know, trying to, if you feel like I, I'm confused, I'm a mess, I don't have a clear light and sense of purpose. Okay. Sun Uranus will help you with that. But it can also be about almost like an angry refusal or denial of the fact that you are diverse, you know, and you'll find Sun Uranus uh, described in many texts as states of mania that come up where people become obsessed with a singular vision of what has to happen. That's a Sun Uranus dynamic. I think that's kind of like saying, like, we just lose track of the fact that some degree of, like, life is a cacophony. And that if you if you step on the wholeness pedal too much, you know, you're going to crash. <laughs> so I don't know. That's That's number one. Number two is we aim for integration. Very similar. It would be to say, well, I have all of these different voices and um, I'm, I'm looking to integrate them. It's another word that can sometimes be like a code word for a lack of tolerance, interest, curiosity uh, with parts or with a communal sense of, of identity or reality. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's, it's like, I mean, again, this sort of like doesn't honor the individuals as having their own necessary voices you know that they that they don't have a reason to be there that we have to blend them all together and you know in, in herbal medicine sometimes you know for me if i can find one plant that will take care of all of the patterns in a person then i like that's the goal for me. But most of the time what ends up happening is you need a bunch of different herbs to blend into a formula. And it's it's through those unique voices of the plants that create a um, create a medicine that's going to be effective for addressing all of the different needs. Um, and so it's not necessarily the inter I mean, yes, it's the blending of them, but we don't want them all to be the same. You know, we, we don't want to make them, we don't want to dilute them um, so that they actually don't have their own individual potency. What I love about herbalism is that you also seek the identification of which plants to use based on a, um, a sim symbolic system of correspondences, sometimes called the doctrine of signatures. Um, but just broadly speaking, what you're looking for is a match in personalities. It's not right. just... It's not just a match of uh, analytical, chemical, neurological systems or uh, mechanisms of cause and effect, or it's personality matching, which speaks to the idea that you're you're trying to create you're trying to create a blend that can go in and speak to the ecology of parts. Right, right. And I, I taught a class at the Confluence about how to make an effective formulation. And like the way that I think about it is you have like the lead herb and then you have the supporters and then you have a balancer and then you have an and then you have an integrator or a synergist. And so each of those, you know, when you're making a formula, you have to figure out who's going to be the leader of the pack and who's going to be the synergist, who's going to kind of bring everyone together on the same page. Um, and those are all the different voices. I mean, that's that that's how I formulate and how I was trained to formulate. And it works. Like if you can get all of those pieces in place based on the energetics, based on the doctrine of signatures, based on your understanding of chemistry, like you can it, it really does. It really does work. Hmm. 
But yeah. often it's interesting because, yeah, sometimes a client will be like, that formula worked, but I really liked whatever it was that was bitter. You know, right. <laughs> And right. they'll be able to pull out from the blend the individuals that really were helpful. Right. And the word integration, it's not, we're not, you know, definitely don't want to demonize the word. There are so many appropriate uh, times in life where you may describe what you're experiencing as integration. Well, there was one part of me, for example, that felt like it didn't have a seat at the table. Hmm. It does now. And so it's been integrated. I think that's a perfectly acceptable use of the, like the idea of integration. I think what we're really trying to get at is this idea that when integration becomes part of a, a monomyth and it inflates the sense of, of one thing only, which can then be about an intolerance toward diversity. Um, so it, we can differentiate the concepts a little bit. Wholeness and integration aren't enemies either, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, integration would be another one. Number three is we aim for balance. I feel like, well, you, you tell me, you, you start this one off. What do you think about this, this myth that's out there? Yeah, I think balance, it's interesting because in physiology, balance is death. You know, I remember taking classes in female hormonal health and reproductive health and learning that if all the hormones are in balance, you're, you're dead. Like that's not the goal. It's actually the flow. And it's this, um, this ebb and flow of levels of estrogen and progesterone and testosterone and cortisol. It's the flow that creates life. And um, also what's interesting is if you look at the human heartbeat, and you see these rhythms and you would think that a balanced rhythm, you know, one that's very consistent equals a, a healthy heart, but it's not. It's actually these, these very interesting, you know, dips and, and, and peaks um, that are that are not balanced, that create a strong and healthy, adaptable heart because it's adaptation that allows us to to survive and to, to adapt to changes. So I thought that, I think that's really interesting physiologically that, that balance is really not an ideal situation. Yeah. It's, it's interesting that like in the, you know, the ancient astrological cosmology and philosophy, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of debate about this, this idea of, um, you know, e eternity versus the time bound world of forms. And as a, as a kind of duality that's set up in Platonism, for example, or even in um, Vedic cosmology too, both the, the big pillars of ancient uh, horoscopic astrology come from these, these two sort of worlds. Um, and they probably have a lot of overlap too, but the sun would represent something like the Platonic ideal. Right. And the world that we're in, the embodied world, would be like the world of coming to be and passing away, the world of transience, of, of change, of um, and, and this world, according to that philosophy, reflects something of this eternal I ideal world. Um, but the goal of some of the mystical traditions, and these would mostly be mono traditions philosophically, or monist traditions are sometimes called, would be to transcend this world of forms and to merge into the oneness of the ideal. Um, some traditions would say that that's the goal. And then oneness is valued above and beyond multiplicity, diversity, 
the the differentiation of forms is seen as less than in in that kind of paradigm in a, in a way it's maya it's illusion like like that not all traditions are like that right but that's like that that sort of broadly represents one category of religious and spiritual traditions and how they would look at the ideal as opposed to the the material world but what's interesting is that some traditions also would say that um you have to have both at the same time if you only have the ideal that's death to the material world. Mm. So it's just exactly what you're saying when you say that it, perfectly balanced hormones means death. Some perfectly ideal state means we lose the flux and flow that is life, that is yeah. the material world. Plato also said time is the moving image of eternity. So there's some, there's some way in which, you know, in order to experience life, we exp that, that we actually can some traditions would say to, to shoot for an ideal that leaves behind this world is death. And that that's actually illusion. Just like the book said, the part that wants to, the part of us that wants to kill the ego is probably, probably more problematic. You know, <laughs> the part of us that wants to leave this world behind because our feet are not walking on perfect rectangles, but on uneven terrain. Uh, that's a, that is at times a very problematic part of us. Now, I think, you know, archetypally speaking, there's a time in life where we shoot for an ideal. Like if you're building a skyscraper, you better have those architectural plans that are based on the ideal mathematics, the ideal physics, you know. So there's like a place for shooting for ideals and reaching toward the sun. Uh, Uranus, of course, stole the fire from the gods. So he's an aspiring character. He's often compared to Icarus, who flew too close to the sun and then fell down. But that's the thing. The, myth the mythology also tells us if you shoot too far to the sun, you know, you burn your wings and you fall, you fall down. Um, I think that at worst, the monomyths of something like Sun Square Uranus tell they be perfectly balanced. Well, that's not life. You know, that's not. And if you try for that, that perfect balance, you fall. Isn't it interesting that the sun was classically said to be in its fall in the sign of the balance? There's something very deep and esoteric about that. That's Libra, by the way. So anyway, um, this has been a really interesting conversation, but we want to take it into a practical space just for fun. I think our thesis here is that it, the monomyth is something that's interesting to be aware of and that sun square Uranus can be something that can actually draw our attention to the communal nature of things uh, because it'll it'll it will tend to amplify our insistence that there's only one way and when we have to visit that as a shadow the natural antithesis is that you're you're a part of a many that you're a part of a community planets and plants have always been about a communal paradigm and a relational approach um, in a birth chart we see who we are through a congregation of planets, houses, signs, aspects. And the planets were said to behold each other. They would look at and testify to each other. And there was actually in the language of the text, the ancient Greek legal paradigm was used to imply that the chart was like a cosmic courtroom where different voices were testifying and saying different things about the life. And then we come to understand those voices and testimonies as aspects or parts of who we are. I think the plant world is very similar. C could you speak to uh, the way in which herbalism has always encouraged us to have this view? 
Yeah. I mean, I was, I was just thinking as you were talking, you know, as above, so below. And, you know, I think a lot of the great astrologers were also herbalists. You know, this was, they, they worked together because they saw the way these patterns were reflected in the plants and how they grew and their coloring and their shapes. And, you know, yeah, it was certainly, you know, in the diversity of the plants that their medicines became more apparent. So, you know, I do think, you know, I, I think I was remembering a friend of mine, Adelita, who, who would talk about her internal itty bitty shitty committee. (laughs) 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 Great. You know, and so she'd have to, you know, and, and then she'd have to like sit down with, you know, and be like, okay, you all need to be quiet. Um, and then she had her board of directors and Oprah was on her board of directors and she had like, you know, Beyonce, she had some like really powerful women on her board of directors. And, you know, I think as an herbalist, it's, it's sort of similar. It's like, you know, who are your allies? You know, who mm. do you, you know, and you might have to like tell the itty bitty shitty committee, like, you know, like you need to yeah, like it's time to step to the side or, Hey, take catnip, you know, you need, <laughs> you need to work on this pattern, you know, take this take this herb. But I think we can address all parts of ourselves with plants because they work on so many different levels, you know, from the physical to the astral to the emotional. Yeah. So there's, I think there's a definite correlation. Well, I think in my own chart, for example, we were coming up with some ideas about what we could share from our own charts. Like I have Mercury square to Saturn. Uh, It's also square to Jupiter, but just as far as the Mercury Saturn piece of that aspect in my chart goes, there are times when I get really stuck and sort of rigid and worried about things. And I have a very suspicious kind of cynical voice. Um, There have been so many plants that Ashley has used over the years as I've asked for help or she's been like, let me give you something, (laughs) but either way, (laughs) like first example, when I get in a place where I'm sort of stuck and worried and anxious, uh, chamomile has been an, an incredible helper. Um, I think that's been a skull cap has been another one that we've used. And I, it's funny because I've just always taken for granted that there, the certain characters in my psyche that show up, uh, are that, that, that I can understand them because I have the language of astrology and I'm like, Oh, that's my Mercury Saturn part, you know? Um, and the Mercury Saturn part might actually have like five or six different voices, you know? Um, because they're like mandalas that the aspects are, they have maybe have many voices, but, um, but then Ashley has always been able to say, Oh, like describe the part for me, so to speak. And then you should check out this herb. Um, so we've always been able to communicate like that. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, some of the plants, they're like the, the intermediary where they're like, you know, yeah, let me let me help that part of you just calm down and relax a little bit. And then, you know, another, another plant can come in and be like, quit the nonsense. You need to sit down and shut up. You know, like there's, <laughs> there's different plants that can interact with the different parts, depending on what's needed in the situation. And I, right. I love that about the plants and about understanding patterns in the psyche, because that's really when I think the herbs are at their best. Well, you have Mars Pluto opposite in your chart. And you were mentioning the other day how sometimes you'll use catnip because 
you can have a tendency to hold things in until they blow. And that's a Mars Pluto pattern. And you, you've you used catnip for that. Like I do. Is- yeah. I'll, I'll be walking to the backyard and you know, I'll be like, let me just even prophylactically take a little catnip to keep, keep the top of the lid, you know, bubbling open with steam rather than just right. blowing all the way off at some point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, what are some others that you would, could you reflect on any others? Um, I mean, I think I have a lot of planets in Aries. So I've got my Mars, Venus, and Mercury, Mercury and Aries. So yeah, there's, I, I like to keep moving and I like new things and I don't like to sit still. It's, that's always been a challenge. And so I think for me, Skullcap has been an herb that's been really helpful and just sort of like, you know, chill out, sit down, you know, it's, it's all going to work itself out. Um, and then rose has been a really good medicine for all that Mars because rose is so cooling and it's such a heart medicine and it just, you know, reassures again that everything is going to, you know, everything will, will be okay. And if you stay in your heart, you'll feel better while you're getting all the stuff done. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think the simple point that we wanted to make today was that their sun Uranus can bring up these monomyths. We've been reading an amazing book that sort of challenges the monomyth paradigm when it comes to ourselves and this idea that we are a community of parts. Sometimes the parts need healing. Sometimes they need to shift how they talk or relate and they can develop in the way they do through trauma, but we can work with parts. We don't have to, eliminate them as we strive for wholeness, uh, merge them because they're problematic unless they're all one thing as an integration or perfectly balance them. So they're all just perfectly even somehow. Um, And instead we can understand maybe the impulse of the sun Uranus as if we think about ourselves as community, then the desire for wholeness that the sun square Uranus presents us with might be about bringing greater clarity or understanding to a part that we haven't spent enough time with or that we're getting to know. Uh, integration could be understand as something that has to do with giving different voices who tend to get squashed by other voices a chance to speak more. Uh, that might be a way of thinking about what integration looks like. And balance can be thought of not so much as a perfect evenness uh, between parts, but rather flow and communication, um, some ability to sing and talk together with greater ease. Maybe that's a different way of thinking about balance. And plants and and planets have always been a language. The point is that can assist us in this kind of work. Yeah. And I I think too, it's like, you know, if we find ourselves really swinging in one, you know, one direction, you know, know that life is good and it will, you know, gently correct us and (laughs) bring us back. Um, But we don't have to, you know, we don't necessarily have to do that blindly. You know, Mm. we can do that with the support of elders and, astrologers and herbalists and, you know, people who, who can speak a language that can give some context to where we are. And if we think of plants as elders as well, right? Absolutely. I mean, it's, it, I know when people say that it might sound a little cheesy, but if we stop and think about how young we are as humans on the planet compared to plants and we think of 175 million years younger than the first (laughs) Right. I looked it up. I was like, I want to know. So that's, I mean, again, you know, this is, but that's the best estimate is that, you know, the first plants they've been on this earth, adapting to this planet, adapting to these forces for 475 million years before we made our entrance. Yeah. In the, in the, in the most technically astute language that our kids use, they're super duper old. 
super duper. <laughs> super duper old. <laughs> so anyway. Thank you so much for having me. This was a great conversation. And yeah, here we go. Going right into the sun. Yeah. Yeah. This is going to be good. Well, tell us what you guys think about today and what kinds of thoughts and, um, you know, stories come to your mind. We'd love to hear from you guys. And we hope that you will have uh, a great day and we'll see you again soon. Bye, everyone.